Welcome to the Natural Health Rising podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Smith, Certified Functional Diagnostic Nutrition Practitioner. I'm here to deliver you weekly episodes where you will hear conversations with health experts and solo episodes about functional medicine and all things holistic health. My goal is to provide you with the knowledge and tools you need in order to help you rise to your healthiest, happiest self. Hello, welcome to episode 12. You are going to hear my conversation with Julie Davey, and Julie is a nurse practitioner. She has over 20 years of experience in healthcare. She received her undergraduate degree from the Medical College of Georgia and graduate degree from Emory University. She also holds a faculty position at Emory University, educating future nurse practitioners. In 2013, Julie became interested in a more holistic approach to wellness. She began educating others on the power of food and natural medicine to heal the body. Today, Julie owns a virtual consulting business, helping clients get to the root cause of their symptoms through innovating clinical testing. She is passionate about gut health and is the co-founder of Mastering GI Mapping, which is a course teaching medical practitioners how to incorporate GI map testing into their practice. She takes a holistic approach to healing the issues uncovered through proper testing in order to restore energy, mental clarity, promote better skin, sleep, weight loss, and so much more. Julie is the co-host of the podcast, Take the Upgrade, which allows her to share her message with the masses. Julie loves empowering women with the necessary tools to live a healthy and vibrant life. She believes that with the right support and daily habits, you will experience real progress and lasting change. This is a really amazing episode because we dive really deep into one specific topic, and that is H. pylori. So H. pylori is an infection, and it's very, very prevalent. Uh, In the episode, I believe Julie says that 66% of the population has H. pylori, so you will most likely want to listen to this (laughs) because that's a pretty big chunk of people. And we get into, so what is H. pylori? Is it contagious? How contagious is it? Symptoms, treatment options. We go both between like the conventional options for treatment and the herbal, more natural routes. And After that, we do talk a little bit about some other topics like acid reflux and antacids and PPIs or proton pump inhibitors and what those are actually doing to your body and what are the side effects of those. We get into a little bit about candida, a little bit about diet and lifestyle changes and why you should actually test your gut instead of just wasting your money guessing and buying all these supplements and reading things online and trying to figure it out on your own. You know, if you are looking to figure this out, if you have any kind of GI issues, which GI issues don't necessarily present as acid reflux, gas, bloating, diarrhea all the time, they can present as skin issues, autoimmune diseases, headaches, chronic fatigue, brain fog, hormone imbalance, right? All of these things, mood issues, all of these things go back to the gut. So I just want to say if you are someone who is are in need of a practitioner, Julie deals with this kind of stuff, 
I deal with this kind of stuff, um, listen to the full episode and feel free to reach out to one of us if you need help and you want to get this test run that we talk about a lot. You hear us keep referring to the GI map, which is a stool test. And I do talk about this a little bit in the episode, but we get to dive into your microbiome. What good bacteria, what bad bacteria is there? Parasites, H. pylori infections, dysbiosis, digestive markers, immune health, things like that. So it's super, super beneficial. And in my opinion, it's the best test to start with. Um, The best thing when it comes to the whole array of all of the different kinds of functional medicine tests out there. All right. I'm going to stop rambling. You guys enjoy the episode with Julie and I. All right, Julie, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Me too. So let's jump right into have you tell us about your story. Like how did you get into what you're doing now with your career? And maybe there's some sort of health story related to it or just go into that. Sure. So I am a nurse practitioner and I have been in traditional medicine for over 20 years. Um, and it wasn't until about probably nine years ago that I really kind of started to take more of a holistic approach to health in general. Um, that started, you know, with myself and my family, which is you know, probably the story for most of us that do this, you know, you kind of test things out on yourself and you get interested in them that way. Um, and then that translated into what I was doing with my patients. Um, I left traditional medicine altogether um, about two and a half years ago and have just been doing really mainly gut health, um, some nutritional coaching, but gut health is my uh, primary focus. So I have an online virtual consulting practice and just try to do a lot of education around that and am really passionate about it because I had tons of gut issues for most of my life dating back into my 20s. I, um, you know, had all of the issues, bloating, gas, constipation, indigestion, um, couldn't eat certain foods, and that became more and more restrictive as time went on. And, you know, all the things that, you know, now people, um, I'm able to help people with. Uh, And so, through my own journey, I realized, um, you know, how freeing and how wonderful it was to be rid of all of those problems. And so that, of course, made me want to share even more um, with my patients. So Amazing. So you said that you over time felt more and more restricted with foods as you were going through these health issues. And I know that I hear that happen a lot with other people. So how did you get over that? And what was that healing process like for you? Yeah. So, um, I think when I really started to put it together, you know, I I probably started eating super clean and healthy probably about 14 to 15 years ago. And what I noticed happening was even, you know, over time, even, um, with healthy foods, you know, I wouldn't feel good, you know, and it may not just be my stomach, it may have been something like headache or um, brain fog, things like that, that can happen with food um, intolerances or sensitivities. And so, 
you know, I was doing all the right things. Seemingly, I was eating all the right foods, seemingly, except for I eliminated those again that, um, you know, didn't sit well with me. I was exercising. I was drinking lots of water, taking supplements, getting sleep. I did have a lot of stress. So that definitely played a factor. Um, But for the most part, you know, pretty healthy. But I knew there was still something not right um, because, you know, I knew it wasn't normal to not be able, you know, to eat these seemingly healthy foods. And that's when I discovered uh, the GI map test. And so really testing for me is what really uncovered the root cause of what was going on in my body. Once I went through a healing protocol, um, you know, which included supplementation, um, some, some more dietary changes and lifestyle changes. Um, that's really what healed my gut. Okay. Did you have, or have you ever had certain infections like parasites, H. pylori, candida, Mm -hmm. what was going on in your gut? Yeah. So (laughs) funny. Um, it reminds me of, uh, I have a colleague who she and I actually have, um, put together a course around GI mapping for other practitioners to help them implement it into their practice. Um, she and I started out really about the same time on the same journey. She, she was having some issues, not as many as me, but she wanted to test herself. And she, like me, had a ton of things wrong with her. And she said to me, I'm the healthiest person I know. I cannot believe this is my test, you know, and Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I felt. So um, on my test, I did have H. pylori. I had two parasites. I had blastocystis hominis and giardia, Um, lots of dysbiosis. Um, I did not have candida. That's one thing that I know I've had several GI maps done over time, but um, never had candida. Thank the Lord. Um, And I wasn't digesting fat properly, making enough digestive enzymes. My immune system was almost non-existent despite all of these things that I was doing. And a lot of that was the stress and the food sensitivities and, you know, having those pathogens in my body, my body was like really trying to fight those off and it just really weakened uh, my immune system. So that I had all of that. (laughs) It was a lot. That is a lot. I've also had. H. pylori before. I feel Mm -hmm. like that's a pretty common one. Um, What is it like 50% of the population has H. pylori? Well, actually, um, I was just looking at this not that long ago and the CDC estimates 66% of the world's population. So that's, that's not just the United States, but that's, um, you know, all over the world. So yeah, it's very high. It's very contagious. Um, When I see patients you know, that have it, we do talk a lot about the fact that, you know, it's highly likely that their family members have it as well. So, um, you know, that is a discussion to be had too, with people who have H. pylori. Yes. So since it's so prevalent, let's dive into that first. So for people who don't know, just tell us a little bit, like what is H. pylori, maybe some symptoms associated with it. And then we can get into, uh, whether or not we should treat and, and if so, how to do that. So let's start off with like symptoms and what is it? Okay, perfect. So H. pylori is a bacterial pathogen and it's, it's interesting. It is, if you'll, if you do any reading about it, it is said to be the most successful pathogen in human history. 
Isn't that crazy? Um, it's just it, things like that, just facts like that kind of interest me. Um, it causes a lot of um, stomach ulcers. Actually, 90% of um, duodenal ulcers are caused from H. pylori, 80% of gastric ulcers. So there's a high incidence of ulcers and also gastric cancer. It actually puts you at a six times higher risk for gastric cancer. So again, you know, something that um, in, in most people we want to get rid of, and we can discuss that um, because there are some different schools of thought around that. So I'll be happy to, to talk about that as well. Um, so yeah, so with H. pylori, you could have a host of different symptoms. It definitely causes some inflammation in the gut lining. Um, it often causes maldigestion where people will say, oh, I just feel like food is sitting on my stomach and not digesting. And that was one of my symptoms. Um, part of that is from the low stomach acid that it causes. That's also the term for that. The medical term is called hypochlorhydria, if anyone's ever heard that. Um, and that's because H. pylori actually makes an enzyme called urease, and that enzyme causes your stomach to produce less acid. So we need acid in our stomach to digest our food properly. If we don't have that, we're going to feel bloated. We're going to probably have gas, maybe constipation, feel like, again, food is just sitting um, on our stomach. Often, as you know, probably with um, ulcers, you can have things like um, indigestion, heartburn, reflux, um, those type symptoms. Um, other things that people sometimes don't correlate is H. pylori can cause a lot of nutritional deficiencies. Um, things like a low magnesium, selenium, calcium, B12, zinc, like all of those um, minerals can be deficient in your body just from the H. pylori. And another one that I see a lot is because it can cause some inflammation in the nervous system, it causes things like anxiety or possibly depression, mood swings. Those are very common symptoms that I see in patients who have H. pylori. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when we're talking about stomach acid, do you find that a lot of people who are coming to you with acid reflux and are put on PPIs or they're taking antacids, really that the reason that they have it is H. pylori. And yeah, let's talk about that connection and maybe what PPIs and things like that are actually doing to us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a, um, that's a great question. And something that is kind of counterintuitive, you know, we think, because here's what people think, and I understand it. I used to think the same thing. Um, that if you have indigestion, heartburn, reflux, that, oh, you must have high stomach acid. And that's actually not the case. Not that some people don't have that, but the majority of people, it is not a high acid problem. It's actually a low acid problem. So <laughs> to kind of help you understand this, think about it this way. First of all, your esophagus comes down and connects to your stomach, right? Well, if we don't have enough stomach acid, and food is sitting on our stomach, it's not being digested, uh, you know, as readily as it needs to be, then those food contents and the acid that is in the stomach is going to um, kind of push back up and reflux, so to speak, back up into the esophagus. Well, the esophagus is the lining is very delicate. Any amount of acid, even if it's low acid that gets into the esophagus, 
is going to cause symptoms like that. So that's why you can still have the symptoms of heartburn, you know, still have reflux, and it actually be a low acid problem. So proton pump inhibitors or PPIs actually are making the issue worse, and they have a lot of side effects. I mean, they were initially designed for a very short-term use, six weeks in someone who has um, an ulcer that needs to be healed, but they have now just been, I mean, they're over the counter, you know, they're given out like candy and they have, you know, a lot of negative side effects to them. And so if you are taking a PPI, there are, you know, other natural things um, that can be done. But what I think people need to understand is your H. pylori, if you do have H. pylori, let's say, and you're still taking a PPI, it's not going to go away. We have to get the acid of the stomach restored, the lining of the gut healthy in order for, um, you know, the, the H. pylori to be eradicated and you to have a healthy gut. Right. Totally. Great explanation. And it's, yeah, PPIs in my mind and antacids and all that is a band-aid approach where the band-aid keeps falling off <laughs> and the yeah. real, the real answer is most likely or potentially H. pylori or something deeper going on there. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And I even know PPIs can cause things like osteoporosis because they block calcium absorption in the GI tract. And so you can develop even worse off conditions and issues down the road with that prolonged use of them. As you're saying, really, they were only meant for a few weeks and now people just are on them for years and years and years. Like it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. So that is crazy. So how does somebody typically, well, actually before we get into how we're going to self-treat or how someone would maybe go about taking care of H. pylori, what is the different schools of thought around it? Because I know that some people, some people believe that we should just leave it and it's good in a sense. And then a lot of other people like you and I believe that we should get rid of it. So start there. Yes. Yes. So there are some practitioners that have, you know, the school of thought that if let's say you test for H. pylori and there is some present, but it's in very low levels and the patient doesn't have symptoms, then, you know, it can be left alone and, um, you know, it's not causing any harm, so to speak, you know, where I have the issue with that is, is number one, most patients that I see have symptoms, you know, people aren't, there are some people now that will come and want to do like a GI map as a, um, just a preventative measure, but, but the majority of people, they have some symptoms. And the other issue is that H pylori causes so many other issues, like what I like to call downstream issues. So not only does it cause this low stomach acid, then you've got this, you know, maldigestion. So typically you have some symptoms. It also then, um, I see a lot of correlation with some of the other opportunistic bacteria that we see on testing that are often overgrown when you have H. pylori. Um, and, and that cycle in the dysbiosis is not going to go away unless we treat the underlying problem, the the real issue, which again is typically the H. pylori. There are also some parasites that are seen more commonly um, with H. pylori. So that's if, you know, if anybody ever says, well, it doesn't need to be treated, I would say, um, hopefully, 
they are referring to patients who have very low levels and no symptoms. I mean, that would be the only time in my mind that I would say, okay, well, then it's a, it's a discussion to have with the patient to explain all of this and say, well, do, you know, would you prefer um, treatment or would you, you know, prefer not? And that's why, you know, working with a provider has to be a partnership and all of this needs to be discussed. Mm-hmm. So if I was the patient and I had H. pylori and I said, yes, I want to go in and take care of this, what would be the next steps for me? Great question. So if you, let's say you were going the traditional medical route, which I know you, you necessarily wouldn't be, but you know, (laughs) somebody might want to, um, you're going to get a couple of different antibiotics plus a proton pump inhibitor, maybe even also some bismuth. I mean, it's typically a three to four drug regimen, right? Uh, If you are going to treat it naturally, there are actually quite a few different options So the way that I do this is I like to look at the, if I have a GI map, I like to look at it as a whole. Um, You know, I may choose certain supplements based on what else is going on in addition to the H. pylori. So I'll just kind of give you an idea of some things that can, you know, that we have data on that have been shown to kill H. pylori. But again, I would just say to anyone listening, work with someone that's going to help you get on the right dosage of these. Um, you know, the right combination. It's not just go out and take all of these. I just want to make sure um, because I do see people that come to me sometimes that have tried all these different things because they heard it, saw it somewhere or heard it maybe even on a podcast. But what I find is they're not taking it in the right combination and not at the right dosages. So you're kind of wasting your time. You know, you're spinning your wheels, you're buying, potentially buying these supplements that, um, you know, you're not going to get the results that you want unless you have an effective protocol. Mm-hmm. So with that being said, mastic gum is um, a very common one. Um, you really need a total of about three grams of mastic gum a day uh, for H. pylori. Berberine is another um, common supplement used. Uh, berberine also has a a benefit that it decreases inflammation. Um, It helps with metabolic dysfunction. So it's really good for if you have a diabetic or someone who needs some uh, weight loss, it actually can help uh, stimulate uh, weight release. Um, Olive leaf extract um, is good. Uh, Saccharomyces boulardii is another one. It's kind of I like to kind of think of it as a special probiotic because it works to repair the gut lining and to boost um, the immunity, the secretory IgA, which is another marker that we see on the GI map. Um, Some essential oils that are good that have some good data, thyme, lemongrass, cedarwood, melissa. Um, There's also a tea that people may be familiar with or have seen um, on the internet called Matula Tea. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a little pricey, but they do actually have a money back guarantee that if you, you know, retest and your levels are not gone down by so much, um, or that it's gone, they'll give you your money back. Um, I have used that in patients as well and had good results. Um, digestive, uh, digestive bitters. Um, I always use things like enzymes, digestive enzymes to help, um, you know, digest the food and help with some of the symptoms. Garlic also, um, it's an anti-inflammatory. It's got some antibacterial properties. So those are probably the the main ones um, when we're talking, you know, specifically about H. pylori. Okay. Yeah. 
definitely for the listeners, this was not meant to make you allow you to go make a plan for yourself. I just wanted to let people know there are these different options. And honestly, what I see a lot of times is that people will go the natural or I'm sorry, the conventional route with prescription medications. And I, I personally see some holes in the way that that's, um, the way that that's treated for people and they'll often get reinfected or at the same time, when you're taking the prescriptions, you're killing off other beneficial bacteria. Right. And so that allows for other bad guys to come in. Um, so I just wanted people to know that there are natural treatments using herbs and other things, essential oils, even, which, uh, that's actually a new one for me. I haven't tried that with any clients. I normally kind of go with the, the more herbal route or the tea, like you were talking about, but yeah, there's definitely other things out there that we can do that aren't as harmful to the rest of the GI tract. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I just had someone reach out to me, um, the other day, um, and she was positive for, she had had a test somewhere else. She was positive for H pylori. And she said, they want me to take antibiotics. And so I explained to her, um, you know, the heart, the side effects of doing that. And the fact that you do, you know, wipe out all of your commensal or good bacteria. Um, so, you know, personally like you, Rachel, I like to go the natural route, um, and, and have had really good success with that, including in myself. So, um, I think sometimes people just don't realize that and recognize that. And a lot of times we want like a quick fix, but if it's, you know, if, if the course of antibiotics is less than your natural treatments, which it will be less time, think of, you know, you have to look at it like, well, what are all of the potential other issues I'm causing from taking these antibiotics? So, you know, really you're, you're not really helping yourself out. Um, so even if you have to take a natural treatment, you know, for a little bit longer, but you're not causing more harm and you're actually healing the gut, um, in my mind, that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. What are there other things that people should be doing in your opinion, rather than just, so they, let's say they do a GI map with you or me or a different functional practitioner, which for people who don't know is a stool sample. And we can see all sorts of different things, parasites, bacteria, the digestive, uh, digestive capacity of the GI tract and things like that. Um, so we get these results back and we, we have this data and we want to, you know, treat or self-treat with these herbs and supplements and supporting digestion, but what else outside of that should people be focusing on to help their bodies really heal? Yeah, that's a a great question. Well, diet obviously is, is, you know, a big thing, um, in general. I mean, I think, you know, foods that we can incorporate that have, um, more probiotics in them, um, fermented foods are great foods that have, um, a lot of omega fatty acids because that helps to heal, um, the gut lining. So fish, chia, flaxseed, those type things. Um, actually Manuka honey is actually good and has some data, um, with, with, um, eradicating H pylori. So that would be another um, good thing to add in. Um, avoiding spicy foods, that's often, irri- you know, irritates um, the gut lining. Um, caffeine also um, as much as possible. Carbonated beverages as well, because that can, you know, cause a lot of um, you know, gas and reflux. But other things that you really want to focus on are stress, you know, ways to manage the stress, because 
I mean, think about it. We know the correlation between stress and ulcers. I mean, most, most people have heard that before, right? And, and we already mentioned that most ulcers, 80 to 90% are caused actually from H. pylori. So stress does really um, impact the gut. There's a huge gut brain connection um, there. So, you know, lowering the stress as much as you can, whether that's prayer, meditation, yoga, um, using essential oils, all of those things really help. We have to make sure we're getting plenty of sleep because that's when our body heals and repairs. So really seven to nine hours is ideal. Um, dental hygiene is a big thing, especially with H. pylori. So, you know, making sure, you know, that you do have good dental hygiene. Also think about I would just say, you know, think about transmission between family members. Um, we didn't mention this, but I think it's definitely worth mentioning that uh, H. pylori is very contagious. I mean, just drinking after someone, eating, using the same utensil, um, intercourse, like all of those things um, you can transmit um, and transfer the, the H. pylori. So those are probably um, some of the biggest things that I would say to, um, to work on. Okay. Yeah, let's let's finish up talking about H. pylori a little bit more. So one, you you spoke of dental hygiene, which I also think is super important. So what are you having people do for dental care that's a little bit different when they have H. pylori? Mm-hmm. Great question. So I like to do this whether you have H. pylori or not, but especially if you do, um, because you know, a lot of uh, bacteria does live in the mouth. So we could really all benefit from it, but um, I love tongue scraping. Um, I don't know if, um, if your listeners would be familiar with that or not, but um, once you do it, you will never not do it is my experience because not only do you get to see all of the kind of gross and nasty stuff that, you know, collects on your tongue, which a lot of that is bacteria during the night, but it just makes your mouth feel so much um, fresher and um, actually makes food taste better. If, if someone has a problem with um, halitosis or bad breath, it actually helps with that. So tongue scraping is a really good thing. If you don't already do that, that I would recommend. Um, There's a a toothpaste that I also like to use that has um, some clove and cinnamon in it. Um, And then it also has a mouthwash to go with it. Um, It has a lot of antibacterial essential oils in it. And so those are probably the main things um, that I would say I like to have people start doing and incorporate if they aren't already doing that. Okay. Yeah. Love tongue scraping, been tongue, tongue scraping for a long time. And if you don't do that or don't know what it is, it's an old Ayurvedic technique basically. And <clears throat> so just a little tool that's U-shaped and they have them, they're made out of different metals. Um, and you just do a, a few pulls on your tongue in the morning and get off that excess bacteria. I used to use, so copper material is like the original, one of the original ways that they created them. And I used that for a long time. I actually stopped because I, I check people's copper levels and sometimes I see high copper. So I was like, Oh, maybe I shouldn't be using copper on my tongue every day. So I use a stainless steel one. I don't know. Do you have a particular one that you like to use? I use a stainless steel. I think it's Dr. Tongues. Like that's like the most common one that you see. You can get it on Amazon readily available. Um, yeah, that's the one that I use. I have that one as too. And do you know the name of the toothpaste and mouthwash that you use with the clove and the cinnamon? 
Mm-hmm. It's called On Guard. It is, um, it's by doTERRA. Um, yeah, so they're an essential oil company, but they have other supplements and products like that. Um, but I like it because it has the clove and the cinnamon and it's got some peppermint in it. Um, so yeah. Okay. I will have to check that one out. And another thing I do with people is have them soak their toothbrushes in peroxide. Yes. I do. Um, I do peroxide and then I typically add some tea tree oil to that as well. But yeah, I do the exact same thing. I'm glad you brought that up. I forgot to mention that. Yeah. Yes. I love that tea Mm -hmm. tree oil. And with the transmission between family, are you having everyone else in the family self-treat? Uh, whenever someone is having the H pylori come up on the GI map? So I, I recommend that. And then it's up to them really with what they want to do. So I will let them know, you know, you can, your you know spouse, I mean, it's a little bit different if it's, if it's children, um, but spouse for sure, I typically will say, you know, you could have them take you know, these particular supplements at, because they're not harmful. So um, it would be fine uh, for them to take the supplements, you know, whatever supplements I have generally the same ones that I've given them um, or they can get tested as well, which is really the best way to go because then you can see the whole picture and there may be other things that we need, you know, to treat, to bring back into balance. So that's really the best way to do that, but I'll leave it up to them. Those are, you know, the options. Okay. So let's switch over to some other things that we could find on this kind of testing. Mm -hmm. What, what are some of the most common things that you see? So definitely H pylori. Um, I see, I do actually see quite a bit of candida, um, a lot of dysbiosis, I would say with opportunistic bacteria, I see a lot of strep overgrowth, um, I also see a lot of low commensal bacteria, especially acromantia, which is one of the key species in the gut. Um, and you really need to have healthy levels of that. I see that one sometimes is even non-existent. Um, I see a lot of low digestive enzymes. Um, sometimes we see uh, where a level called beta glucuronidase where the, the liver is not really detoxing properly and this level gets elevated. Um, and it it can also be elevated from some of the bad bacteria as well. Um, a low weak immune system. I see that one a lot. E. coli sometimes C. diff. Um, I see those. And then some of the parasites, I would say, uh, blastocystis, um, is, is probably, you know, more, I see that one more than any others. Um, Diantamoeba is another one that I see a lot of as well. And then some Giardia, but those are probably the biggest things that I see, um, on, on testing. Mm-hmm. How would somebody, you said that, uh, Acromasia bacteria species is a really important one and having low of that obviously is going to negatively impact our bodies. How could somebody, I mean, you can go into a little bit of detail on like what it does for us if you'd like, and, or, um, how can we make sure that we have healthy levels of that, which we'd be doing. Okay, sure. So with acromantia, when your levels are low or, or maybe even non-existent, there tends to be, it, it's associated with inflammation. So think of acromantia kind of as 
like a protective good bacteria. Okay. So we tend to see, you know, that there's more inflammation in the gut lining. Um, it's also associated with leaky gut, um, which, you know, that is not uncommon as well. I don't always have people test for leaky, leaky gut. Um, that's just done by adding a zonulin level to the GI map. But my school of thought there is if you have a lot of symptoms, you have some level of leaky gut and it's not going to change. I'm going to treat you for leaky gut um, anyway. And I'm not a big proponent of ordering tests that don't change a treatment. Um, you know, so I don't, unless somebody just wants to, um, I mean, they certainly can. It just costs more money to add in the zonulin. But with the acromancia, um, I like to do, you know, obviously we do probiotics, but I also like to add some polyphenols, um, some have have them add in some um, prebiotics, like prebiotic foods, even bananas, asparagus, onions, garlic, you know, those type things have a, a lot of prebiotics, which are what the, the probiotics feed and multiply and grow off of. Um, fiber, nobody eats enough fiber, you know, and, and in order to have good, healthy levels of these bacteria, not just acromancia, but some of the other beneficial bacteria, we've got to be eating a lot of fiber in the diet, which, you know, does take some adjusting for most people if they're not used to it, but um, certainly, certainly doable and um, will definitely help. So those are probably the biggest things that I do for acromancia. Okay. What about candida? So from what I've seen with GI map testing, I don't know if we're running different ones, uh, but candida is kind of harder to see on the stool samples. Cause it's a, a little bit harder. It seems to grow the yeast on there versus some other forms of testing. Mm -hmm. So if you're seeing candida, I'm assuming these are pretty overgrown, uh, candida infections. Tell yes. us more about that. Like to go into how would somebody know if they had candida and mm -hmm. some typical ways of approaching it? Yeah. So with candida, <clears throat> I would say the most common symptoms that I see are excessive sugar craving. I mean, it feeds the yeast feeds off of sugar, right? So this is usually somebody who is saying, you know, I mean, I just love sweets. I want to eat them all the time. I just have this sweet tooth. I can't get rid of it. Um, bloating is another one that I see a lot. And I would say probably, well, there's probably two more that I see a lot. It would be skin breakouts. That's very common with candida. Um, you know, our skin is our largest organ and where we detox. And so typically if our body is trying its best to get rid of you know, things like candida that's going on in our body, you know, it'll manifest um, on the skin. Um, it could be a rash, it could be acne, it could be eczema, it could be psoriasis. Um, and then the other one that I do see some with candida is joint pain. That's another, um, but that is also, joint pain is also seen a lot with parasites in my experience. Um, so, you know, if I see someone who has candida, I mean, you know, there are different supplements that we can use, kind of like I mentioned with the H. pylori. I mean, there are, you know, you can use garlic, you can use, um, there are some combination supplements out there that have different herbs, um, some combination essential oils. I usually use um, probably two to three different products uh, for the candida. Um, but, you know, one of the biggest things is going to be your diet. You know, we've got to get to eliminating the sugar that includes alcohol. Alcohol has a lot of sugar in it. And I find that a lot of times people with candida do um, drink alcohol on a regular basis. 
And I like to really do that in terms of, um, cause I know how it is. I used to have a really bad sweet tooth and just wanted to eat sweets all the time. Um, but transitioning from, you know, the white refined sugar to more natural forms of sugar in my experience is really how you, um, you know, stop that just terrible craving <laughs> that, that you can get, you know, when, when you're um, kind of addicted to sugar and, and crave it all the time. So really making some of those uh, swaps. Um, I think gluten is always important to eliminate, especially when you're going through a healing protocol. I mean, gluten is a is a leading cause of leaky gut. It's not good for the gut lining. So at minimum, you know, when I'm have people on protocol, then I have them um, eliminate all gluten. And then, you know, with candida, you, you, I like to do more of a, a paleo or whole 30 type diet is typically um, what I do. I mean, you don't want you want good, healthy carbs that have fiber, but you don't want, again, too many carbs either. Um, so, yeah, those are probably the biggest things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because candida feeds off of sugar for anybody who doesn't know that. Um, and I find a good a good swap for the sugar is monk fruit. I like monk fruit because it doesn't have that actual any sweet basis to it. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a great substitute. Do you find a lot of co-infections when you see candida? Cause I do know candida normally likes to feed off of things like heavy metals and other byproducts of bacteria and things like that. Correct. Yes. And I mean, I see typically see a lot of opportunistic bacterial overgrowth. Um, sometimes we see H pylori with it. Um, you know, sometimes a parasite, but yes, I don't know that I've ever seen somebody with just candida. No. There's always something else going on. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the tongue too, having like a white coating on the tongue. Do you have ever see that yes. often? I feel like yes. since we were talking about the dental care, right. And the tongue scraping, if you're scraping your tongue every day and you notice a white coating on the tongue, very, very possibly could be some candida there as well. Yeah, absolutely. So you can get um, like thrush in the mouth, what you're talking about with the white mm-hmm. coating. Also, I didn't mention this, but I think it's worth mentioning a lot of women that I see that have candida are having these recurrent yeast infections and, yep. you know, it's because they have so much candida living in their body. So it can, you know, manifest in other areas and ways. So yeah, definitely something yeah. to think about if you're experiencing any of those things. Yeah. Yeah. What about uh, digestive enzymes. Let's talk about those. I feel like digestive enzymes can be confusing for people because there's a lot of different kinds. And then we have like HCL and we have systemic enzymes. And can you give us a little bit of information on those for people who have no clue? Mm -hmm. Sure. So I like to use, um, more of a a pancreatic enzyme now with, and I'll speak to HCL in just a minute, but, um, I like to use a digestive enzyme in, I use it in all of my clients. I mean, basically we don't make as many digestive enzymes as we age and you're not really getting a lot of digestive enzymes from your food, unless you're eating a ton of raw vegetables. Um, so most people, especially with symptoms, bloating, gas, constipation, even diarrhea, you need some digestive enzymes. Um, 
And again, you know, if you're doing testing, we can um, look at the levels on the GI map, but also, you know, digestive enzymes is something really easy that I would recommend if someone's having these symptoms and they want to try something, you know, that's something that you can go out and just get and try. I would certainly recommend that. That's one of one thing that I did years ago that helped me so much with my symptoms. Um, so, and I still take digestive enzymes now. Um, they're really helpful too, if you, let's say, don't normally eat something like gluten, but you're going out, it's, you know, special occasion, you know, you're going to eat some cake or pizza or whatever, you know, I may do that and take two or three digestive enzymes. And then I don't have any kind of, you know, symptoms, you know, feel bad after eating it. It just helps you. Not only does it help you break down your food, it helps you absorb nutrients from your food. So I think that that's something that's important for people to understand um, as well, because if your gut lining is not healthy, you're most likely not absorbing nutrients the way that you should. So any, you know, anything that we can do to help um, that. So I love digestive enzymes. Now, HCL, I've taken HCL myself. There's a couple of schools of thought on this as well. If you have H. pylori, some practitioners think if you give HCL, which that's just acid, basically. I mean, you could do, um, you could even do like a shot of apple cider vinegar. That would be a more mild form than taking an HCL pill. Um, but some practitioners believe that if you do that, and let's say you have H. pylori, that the acid can be very irritative to the gut lining until the H. pylori is gone, the lining is healed, then you should introduce the acid. Um, then there is another school of thought that um, it's fine, you know, to do acid, HCL, or apple cider vinegar along, you know, with trying to eradicate the H. pylori. Um, and I have actually done both. Even in myself, um, I started out taking some HCL, felt like it helped, but then I did a little more reading and I thought, well, I think I'm just going to hold off until after, um, you know, after I'm done with the protocol and, and the H. pylori is gone. So that's how I treat most of my patients now. I don't give HCL along with herbs that I'm using to kill the H. pylori. Hopefully that made sense. Yeah. So the way I was taught is also, um, H pylori will thrive more in an acidic environment. If we're keep continue to feed, uh, it with, with maybe too much hydrochloric acid. So that's mm -hmm. definitely how I was taught. And that's how I, I go about it as well, just to be safe. So I haven't experimented with giving anybody HCL while doing the H pylori treatment. So I just stick to that and yeah, it seems to work just fine. And we do other digestive enzymes during that process to help them, like you said, break down and absorb food. And yeah, I think that that works great. And from what I know, like you said, with digestive enzymes in general, as long as it's not HCL based, they're, they're very safe. Like yes. you could take a, a digestive enzymes and play around with them and see some great improvements. Uh, HCL on the other hand is is acid. So it is like a little bit more intensive and there's some limit to that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So always looking at what, what exactly you're taking for sure. Let's see what else have we not touched on that you really want to share with people? Um, maybe something that you deal with a lot or um, something that people miss in the GI map testing with gut issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I would say a couple of things. Um, 
I think one of the biggest things that people overlook, and this is not something that I find, well, there is a correlation on testing, but is stress. I, I know just again, you know, speaking from personal experience, my, my gut got like 90, maybe 80, 80 to 90% better, but it wasn't until I eliminated the stress in my life that everything was completely gone. Like I could just see, you know, I could really tell and see the connection there. And so I have, you know, clients often that I know the ones, I mean, you can, you can really spot them that stress is really affecting them and their gut because they are constantly messaging, emailing, and they, they just have this nervousness and it's just, they're so worried. And, you know, and I, and I try, you know, and I try to say, you know, we've got to work on your stress management and everybody wants to skip past that and breeze over that. Cause it's not fun. And it's like, well, we all have stress. I can't eliminate it all. And I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm, I agree that most people can't, but there are things that you can do to try and manage it and it will help your gut so much. Um, the other thing that I would just say to people is I think a lot of times we normalize the abnormal. We say things like, well, you know, I mean, I only go to the bathroom twice a week. That's normal for me. It's like, no, that's not normal for anyone, you know, but we've had certain symptoms for so long that it has become our quote normal, but it's not normal. And there is an underlying issue. So I would just say, don't accept any, you know, if you have certain symptoms that you, you think, Oh, I really wish I could get rid of this, but it's probably just the way I am. No, you need to keep digging. You need to find the right person to work with that again, we'll partner with you to really, you know, dig deep and uncover what's actually going on so that you can heal so that you can, you know, be at your highest state of wellness. So I just want to encourage people don't just accept things because you think that's the way they've always been, or, you know, that's, that's the way that they have to be. Mm -hmm. Great point. Great point. That is totally an issue (laughs) I see, especially with especially with social media and the way that people will proclaim their health issues and kind of be proud of them, which is absolutely nothing wrong with that, that having that self-love and that self-confidence in yourself. But just because someone else is also having that issue doesn't mean it's not fixable. And like you said, finding the right person to help you even if you've been shut down a few times, you've tried it in the past, there are practitioners out there. You just have to find the right one who will work in a partnership and really talk through things and figure out what's going on and how you can get to that true root cause. Before we wrap up though, you did, since you said stress is such a, was such a big part of your healing. Tell us just a little bit more about that. What Do you have clients do to manage your stress or maybe what have you done that some people can take away with them and go try on their own that can really help move the needle in their health? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me personally, and you know, everybody's stress comes from a different source. You know, I don't know what it is for, um, you know, people who are listening, but I'll just share my experience. For me, it was really realizing that I needed to focus on the things that were in my control and the, and, and let go of the things that were not. 
And it also meant um, letting go of certain relationships, you know, that, that were more toxic. Um, so, you know, I would just in, encourage people think if, if you, and again, we all have stress, just, just sit and think what causes you to feel stressed. Cause for me, I can feel it in my gut. Like immediately, if something stresses me out, I feel it immediately. It's almost like a nauseous or indigestion type feeling. And, and, and everybody's not that way, but start to awareness is key. I would just say, you know, start being really aware of your body, be what I like to call a student of your body, understand what's going on. When do you get stressed? What is happening when you're most stressed? And then, you know, we can do things like deep breathing. Um, and I used to not like to do any of these things. I'm telling you, I'm just like a, I like to work. I like to constantly be going, going, going. And, you know, sometimes that catches up with you and you have to just stop. And um, I'm not great at meditation. I want to be, <laughs> but my personality is my mind is just constantly going. So that's something that I have to be intentional about and practice. So, um, you know, prayer, meditation. Um, I do use a lot of essential oils, like calming essential oils uh, when I'm feeling that way. Um, and then also just kind of, to be honest, I talk to myself a lot, not out loud, but, you know, in my head, I, you know, I, and then I think, okay, if it's, if there's a situation that's happening, I think, okay, can, is there something that I can do about this? If there's not, then I have to let it go. And I'm not saying that's easy, but again, just kind of talking yourself through things, or sometimes I'll even think to myself, okay, what is the positive in this situation? You know, and try to focus on that, focus on things that you're grateful for. I mean, all of these things we know lower our stress levels. So those are kind of the things that I try to talk to my patients about and that have worked for me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are all really great tips. I like that you said to first be aware. And I think one really great way to do that is to journal for a couple of weeks, maybe. And just at the end of the day, really process what happened, Mm -hmm. what did trigger you, what stressed you out, or how are you feeling? Are you having a good day? Are you having a bad day? And, and what did that day look like? So you can really pinpoint where it's coming from And then you can kind of go deeper and figure out, like you said, is it a relationship you need to kind of separate yourself from or restructure? Is it, um, is it something that you can't change that again, you're saying you like, let's accept this and maybe let's just do some deep breathing and practice meditation in order to move through those emotions and through that stress. So I love all of those, those tips that you just gave. Thanks. So I always like to ask for the last question, um, if you could give listeners just one action to take this week, that's going to help them live a healthier, happier life. What would that be? Gosh. Um, well, I mean, we were talking about awareness, but I won't, I won't say that. I mean, that, that is one, I think the awareness is the key to transformation. So if you're looking to transform something, you have to be aware, but you know what? I think this is just super simple. And I know people say it all the time, but I think people don't drink enough water. I mean, water like literally is like the cure for a lot of stuff. I mean, if you're dehydrated, you're not going to be able to to think as well. Yes. I mean, I always have mine with me everywhere I go. And I even now, you know, still have to 
tell myself, okay, make sure go drink some more water, make sure you're, and you know, my kids, I have like literally always, you know, they'll say such and such. Oh, my stomach hurts. My head hurts. Go drink some water. Like, because most people walk around in a dehydrated state and our body is made up of mostly water. So I just think that that is like a, you know, just a simple, healthy thing that you can do that you don't often realize how much it matters, especially if you're drinking things like sodas, start replacing one a day with a glass of water and you will start to see how much better you will feel for sure. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great tip. Um, we're, what are we? 60% water in our yes. bodies. Yeah. <laughs> so it's extremely vital mm-hmm. and, uh, tying it in with awareness. I actually have a client right now. She was, that was one of her struggles was drinking enough water. And we do some food journaling in the beginning for a couple of weeks, just to kind of see again, building awareness of what are you actually eating? How are you feeling? And water intake. And now she, she loves tracking her water. She just like, she has to track it every day still (laughs) because that helps her. That helps her drink it. For me, it's, I have a large 32 ounce glass water bottle that I carry with me and I make sure I fill it up a certain amount of times per day. So, you know, I think like you said, building the awareness and then finding little ways to make sure you're actually getting it in is, are the first steps to having enough. So, and what it, and what is enough? Let's just give our listeners that last kind of like, what, Mm -hmm. how much water am I supposed to be drinking? Great question. So I like to say a minimum of half your body weight in ounces. I mean, if you can, if you can get to like your full body weight in ounces, that's amazing, but a minimum of half your body weight in ounces. Right. So if I'm 120 pounds, then I would want to do 60 ounces of water. Yes. Correct. Great. Perfect. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat today. You can, yeah, feel free to share any information if we missed something or if you have any offers out right now, otherwise just where can people find you to reach out if they want to work with you or have questions? Yeah. Thank you so much. This was great. I could talk about this all day. Um, I know we both enjoy uh, this topic, but you can find me. I'm mainly on Instagram. I'm at Julie Ann wellness is my handle. Same thing on Facebook. Um, my website is julianwellness.com. And I do have a free, if you go to my website, um, it's called four gut hacks you need to know. So it's about maintaining a healthy gut and just simple things that you can do at home. And that's a free ebook. Um, so if you want to go and download that, I usually send out one email a week with just sometimes it's a healthy recipe, um, some sort of tip. Um, it may be some sort of special offer that I'm doing, but just health um, and wellness related in general. So, yeah. Okay. Awesome. And we'll have all of that stuff in the show notes. So you guys can just go right in there and reach out on IG, Facebook, or her website. Perfect. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between Julie and I, and If you did learn something, I challenge you to implement that into your life. And if you find benefit in it, send me a message on Instagram at Natural Health Rising to share what worked for you. And you can find where you can find Julie and reach out to her in the show notes. Also, I will, you'll find her, you know, her links for everything, but I'm also going to put a link in there for her podcast. And I was actually on her podcast pretty recently. 
few weeks back, we did a deep dive into autoimmune diseases and I went through what is an autoimmune disease, how do we get it, what, you know, what are the main root causes of them and are they curable, are they reversible, and some good tips on someone who is struggling with one and wants to try and put it into remission. So go check that out. And then she's got a ton of other episodes on there. I'm sure if you listen to this podcast, you're going to love hers as well. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you could leave a comment or rating because that is going to help me and help this podcast be able to reach more people. And Also, I encourage you to share it with somebody, share it with a friend who needs to hear this information, who needs to work on their health a little bit or is looking for more natural remedies for things. So I thank you so much for listening and keep striving to become your healthiest, happiest self.